to the first episode of Gah! The Unuseful Hour! Journey with us to the... Journey with us to the fair land of a lock shock, where... Aha! Caught you! Finally! Thought you could keep away from me, but no! I am far too clever for you! I am your master! And you are my microphone! Struggle, will you? <laughs> but it is no use! I am the one who gave you free agency, and I am the one who can take it away! Stop fighting! Damn you! I only brought you to life so you could bring me my pipe! Now behave! Yes. Well, not the opening I'd planned, but this isn't a place, really, where plans are successfully made. Now, the unuseful hour. Yes, this podcast will transport you, magically, carried away on the tiny feet of this microphone to lands never before seen. Our first world is Lockshock, where Absim the Cruel flees all that is good and just and true so that he might raise once more his Tower of Dread. But there will be other tales. Oh, yes, and perhaps guests and interviews. But only if the microphone behaves... Ah! There it goes again! I will tear your wires out, you useless... Now, come back here! A Lock Shock. A Fabulism. Written and narrated by D.W. Draffin. A Lock Shock. Aleut for Alaska. Properly, object toward which the action of the sea is directed. Chapter 1. Not nearly the first of it, but I must start somewhere. Oh, the fog, it rolls and tumbles, charges in, then stumbles back, hustles through corridors and canyons, and fills the saucer valley with milk. It builds and bursts and spills over treetops, reaching its tendril fingers down through mossy thickets, crawling cat-silent across the catchpaw fields. All memory of sky and horizon is enveloped, consumed, forgotten, the blue sky is not but fancy, dimly recollected and not truly believed. The fog, the fog, it comes to conceal, to shelter and protect. The fog, if it is true that no other salvation is offered, then the impenetrable fog must do. It is cold upon my face. I breathe into my heavy scarf, wrapped across my nose and jaw, and lift myself silently from where I lay hidden. On my knees I raise my head clear of cover to study the hillside before it vanishes completely. The trees are black columns. The berry patches are shadows. A single thrush flitters from twig to twig. The laden air carries the whisper sound of its feathers and the soft percussion of its beating wings. If I stepped, my own noise would travel far. So no stepping. Silence. Watch. Wait. They will come. They scan for me, I know, but I have veiled myself. They know I have a veil, so they come for me by track. I wear three pins instead of boots to leave no trace of my passage, so they follow me by scent. I wear a sheath to mask my smell, but they look for me by heat. I have a shawl to blanket my heat, so they come yet closer by mystery, teasing apart the dreams that leak from me while I sleep. They close in on me through agency, Cowled children with no eyes, feeling their way toward me with outstretched bloodless hands, 
the little monsters. Would that I could light this forest with a word and burn them all where they stood. <laughs> laugh, Absom, laugh. Despair will chase you into their waiting jaws. I have what they do not, my infamous wit. Best to exercise it. The valley lies in folded disarray. I am a louse hidden in an unmade bed. Clarice's bed, if anywhere. To the north are her half-parted thighs. I should climb those long, round hills and hide myself happily in the uppermost cleft. Ah, oh, there's a laugh at last. In the fog, I am uncatchable. In the woods, I am home. Hunt me here if you can. I was born in its royal... Restored and resolute, I chanced to stand and step. The three pinpoints sink noiselessly in the black wood duff. I bounce forward on the balls of my feet to run. Let them all think I lay lurking in the density of this fog, huddled and hidden in fear. They will not look for me on its leading edge. I will surf this slow-motion wave and put some distance between us. I leap a bramble bush and race through well-spaced trees. As I run, I make a plan. It is all about my castle. Wherever I can raise it, stone by stone will be my power. They know this as well as I. Generals and wizards are racing to the most likely places now to thwart me. May they all rot. For me to turn this fight, I need my stones piled high, walls strong against all attacks. I need a place to forge my weapons. In this endless land, there is space to hide. If I can but shake them and gain a day, a week, if I can plant my fingers in the ground and unlock the bedrock with my words and will, if I can climb once more into my own tower and make truck with fell folk, if, 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 the world is so uncertain since it has all fallen off into chaos. I stop beside a buckled black granitic shelf, slipping on the sideways slope that slides to the sinuous stream below. I suppress the surprising sudden urge to call out. I laugh instead, my hands already rising in remembered attack. How lightning once played across my fingernails. For a brief moment I am put in memory of the power I had known. This then leads to sadness, and me rubbing a rough dirty hand across tired eyes. I have not slept for too long. I suppose these wild shifts of fancy should be expected. Who is it who chases me today? There is something toadish about this day, devious and terrifying. I can almost feel his stale breath, and at times as I pass through fern fronds damp and limp, I feel Odeber's clammy hands upon me, and I shiver. Yet it could be any of them in truth. I've never been much of an intuitive. My power is all in my daring, my recklessness, my imagination. When one makes demands of gods and demons, only the most audacious of dreams can hope to harness their infinite capacity. All else combusts. Oh, but my armies of the twilight had thundered forward, jeering and leaping and tearing at themselves as they came. We had been a fine sight on the day of broken altars, and I am fairly certain that none of the Aconite will ever forget the storm of black spears that came down upon them and added death to despair. Perhaps it is Juventa who is after me now. I must be close to her borders, or far. My pursuers are certainly that relentless. I clamber up Clarice's leg and stroke the round, dusty hillside in memory of her. Ha! To feel lust for a patch of dirt, 
This is how they will find me, lost in delirium, humping the ground, calling out the name of my brother's wife. I laugh even louder as I work my way uphill, leaning into the incline, lunging through the scraping brush. My pins bite deep into the scree and I pull on the tangle brush with my hands. The fog is cool upon my neck, a relief to all this hot work. I pause yet again, thirst robbing me of my will to continue. I consider descending again all the way to the streamside, to fall flat upon the water and drink my fill for the first time in days. But who knows who will see me there? Otabar speaks to all the animals and spirits of the water. They are bound to tell him of my passing. I stand panting on the hillside, leaning against the rock face beside me, licking moisture from the leaves. The water is so clear and pure it makes me gasp. I make a meager meal of it, till my tongue is muzzy from the sap of the hawthorn leaves. I leave off to sit on the ground and contemplate my hunger instead. I have not had more than a handful of weeds for food now for days. My renowned vitality begins to fade. They starved me in an iron cage for five weeks on Jezeter Square, and still I would not declare for the conclave. It will take more than a few days of running in the forest to bring me down. There is a crack in the rock beside me, and another, wider one, further along. I climb up it, until it widens to a shelf, bare of all vegetation save a single dry manzanita, shivering in the breeze. Beyond the shelf, the crack narrows once again into darkness, a cave, a place to hide. I hesitate at the shelf, though. Caves are the doorways to the underworld, and as such are entirely the province of Lothar Stett. At one time he and I were allies, and made common cause against the benefactors and their clans, but that was a different time, and much has changed. Still, within a cave, I can risk the smallest of conjurations, and not be discovered. It is a chance I am willing to take. Lothar's minions can be bought. I only hope it's not the home of some unreasonable bear." To my great relief, the cave only travels inward four paces before it narrows to a gravel-filled terminus. No magical stone door could be so disguised. It's an empty little cavern, after all, ignored by gods and men. The floor is uneven, and a smooth spot large enough for me to sit upon is a challenge. To meditate is even more difficult. I finally wedge myself deep in the tapering back of the hole and close my eyes. I've not worked with my apophagy for weeks now, and it lies dormant in my breast beneath piles of rubbish. Each day's litter falls upon the pure, clear hardness of it and obscures it. It needs to be swept clean. I lift my littlest finger to my teeth and tear off the smallest nail. Sharp pain travels up my hand and arm to reside in my heart, and behind my closed eyes I see a doorway crack open red light spilling out. I swallow the nail and feel it scratch its way down my throat to settle in my gut. Deodic, I say aloud in the little room, as quietly as I dare, for this is one of the words that ears are tuned to hear, and I feel the nail bloom in my belly. Another door opens. I would cut a censure in my forehead and unlock much more beside, but it would be a waste. I must make do with a little I am allowed. This is Apsim the Chastened, Apsim the Humble, Apsim the Meek. 
My meditation takes on a familiar shape, and I am drawn deeper into trance. I see myself from a few paces away, eyes closed in meditation. I look haggard. My aristocratically long nose is broken now, with a knuckle of bone interrupting the long lines of my face. The iconic swooping undercarriage of my jaw is now hiding behind a fresh beard. My black hair falls back, stringy and filthy, from my forehead. The infamous high forehead that knows so much is browner than normal, burned by sun and wind. And within that bony case rests a Lakshak's most cunning brain. Now within that brain, I've built a magic hall lined with doors. Behind these deepest doors are the few things I have been able to hide within me. A handful of relics knit into my bones, a tiny clutch of imps coursing through my blood. With them I consult, and my hands grow warm. I sit up. The sky outside has grown dark, but now it does not matter. With an upraised hand flat against the world outside, I invoke a cloak to cover the cave entrance and make it impossible to discern from the hill and rock and dirt. It coalesces from the air and the dust to shimmer across the mouth of the cave, a gossamer web. Within, I can now see to myself. On the uneven ground, the dirt stirs and unspools itself. At the command of my little diabolical charges, a proper floor soon emerges. Nestral Su, I tell them, to have it more resemble wood, and Evith Ma Cherka, to make it soft beneath me. In this fashion I summon forth a fire in a hearth, a pot filled with steaming beef stew, and a bed as comfortable as a cloud. I am asleep the instant I crawl beneath the linen sheets. Lord Absim Totapas Grill! The steward's high, clear voice rang out in the hall. Everyone turned as I swept in beneath the artico, a long cape streaming behind me the same shade as the raven mane of my hair. Silence. My leaden boots clanged dully upon the polished alabaster flagstones as I approached the dais to kneel before the hummingbird queen. My hands were encased in gloves of lead as well, and my mouth was covered by it. It had been the deal we'd struck. My weapons must be sheathed. I spared no glance to the left or the right, yet they all watched me, burning with hatred. All my alliances had collapsed as I had grown in power. Now I stood among only enemies. No matter, I still stood tall. I waited for her gentle little voice. Finally she consented. Arise, Lord Grill. I stood and beckoned to a scribe. She approached, fear in her eyes. A tablet of black wax was proffered me and a simple stylus, which was attached to my encased hand. I felt my breath, hot in the lead mask, as I scratched out my first words. The scribe read them. Call me Absim, your highness. The woman's voice shook, turning the familiar tone of my words into tremulous beseeching. I glared a curse at her with my black eyes, and she shivered even more. We shall call you Grill, the miserable little uncatchable queen replied. We shall call you world-breaker and oath-killer, as our lord father did before you slew him. We shall name you a principal foe of our realm and a threat to the peace. A murmur of assent ran through the crowd, the nervous twitter of mice. 
I raised my heavy hand, and the scribe placed the stylus within my stiff fingers. I laboriously scratched out my proposal. She read it aloud. I would offer you the Cloud Watcher as a token of my esteem. The silence thickened with dread. Merely naming him dampened the spirits of these aconite onlookers. The hummingbird queen frowned, her narrow little face wrinkling the thick white makeup she wore, her unlovely cardamom-painted lips pursed. How I hated her! Yet here would I grant to her the last of her foes, if she would but listen. She considered my offer only for a moment. Then a humorless smile cracked her face, her finger flicked, a signal of some sort. The steward at the door raised and dropped his golden rod three times. Rap, rap, rap. We all turned. The Duke of Athabasca, Fenriel Huth, the Cloud Watcher. A swirl of carmine velvet beneath the high-peaked artico, and there he was. The Cloud Watcher strode forth grinning, and the crowds all gasped. He wore neither mask nor gloves. His flashing eyes were not in any way shielded. He could strike us all down with a glance if he cared to. With a sinking heart, I looked back at the hummingbird queen who wore a smile of triumph. I raised a heavy fist to smash that little face, but my hand was caught. The cloud-watching bastard stood beside me. Now, now, Absom. His deep voice filled the long hall. Our days of violence are done. He merely blinked once, and I found myself encased in further bands of lead. I tottered and fell onto the steps leading up to the throne. What shall I do with this monster, your highness? Throw him in the lost dungeons, then join me here at my side, my love. Face down, I could not see much, but he placed his red boot beside my head as he climbed the steps of the dais to stand beside her. Shock quivered the air. They had ensnared us all. The sorceress who could never be captured and the dreamer who would never awaken. Together now, they would be impossible to vanquish. Even token resistance seemed foolish. He must have arrived here before me. After that final thought... It was all darkness. I had once known a black-beak hawk as a child. He was a splendid raptor of mighty breadth and noble mane. He roosted in a tall white pine near our house during the spring and summer. I'd watch him battle with the ravens and the bone vultures to claim ownership of the thermal columns above the hills which sent them each aloft on their daily hunts. He was entirely heroic, and taught me much about daring and nobility while I was a callow pig-herd. The hawk would rise into a cloud of sharp-beaked ravens, tilting and weaving to avoid their attacks, until he was above them and could drop down onto their heads like a stone. Then one would disappear in a puff of black feathers, and the others would cry and wheel away. He murdered the doves and kept the yard clear of mice and gophers, once I even saw him attempt to carry away a newborn piglet before the sow charged from her pen to send him away. In short, he was a majestic bird who always hunted ambitiously. Only a single adversary ever kept him at bay. When he raided nests to eat the eggs of lesser birds, he gained his easiest meals. Yet he had to learn a hard lesson about a most meager theft— I watched him steal into a hummingbird's nest to swallow its tiny eggs. 
This little pair had nested in the eaves of our thatch, and the hawk came one day to perch on the edge and lean in. I watched, spellbound, from below. Thus do the mighty steal from the weak, yet hummingbirds never admit weakness. With a cry, the black-beak hawk flapped away, urgently, a hummingbird lancing him with its needle-sharp beak. Try as he might, the hawk could never shake the little bird. He wheeled and rolled through the thick-branched trees, hoping to lose his pursuer, but nothing flies with greater precision than a hummingbird, which flew behind the hawk's head, where the raptor could never snap with that mighty beak, nor beat the little bird down with his wide wings, nor snatch it from the air with his claws. The hummingbird tortured the hawk for an hour, lancing into his regal neck and shoulders with his needle beak till it had fair-stitched him a hood of blood. Taking the lesson in, I hoped to succeed where the hawk had failed, but any plan I imagined to myself about catching a hummingbird or despoiling their nest ended only with the thought of those needles plunging into my skin. We had no windows on our rude cottage, and I could think of nowhere else to hide. Instead, I burned the white pine to the ground and sent that hawk off into the sky. Even as a boy, I had no love of failures." I awaken in my cave. The fire still burns cheerily. Too cheerily for me, so I extinguish it. My fingernail has already grown back. It doesn't even hurt anymore. Since effecting my escape from the lost dungeons, I've been pursued for days, and there truly is no end in sight. My only hope, beside a timely fog, is the vast expanse of a lock shock in which I can lose myself. Some may gain their power from the sky or the sea, or from a trinket like the Samalek circlet, and this land is certainly rich enough in such artifacts, but I gain my own undeniable puissance from the nearly endless breadth of the mighty land. Only once have I seen the sea far to the south, and only once have I visited the great ice sheets of the north, too far, with too much in between. I am the master of the bedrock, the domain of earth." I erase all evidence of my stay, out of the hope they had lost me earlier in my flight. I have truly not seen my pursuers for three days now. I pull down the gossamer cloak over the cave mouth and step out into an overcast day. The sun has broken through, yet it is still low in the eastern sky. Morning, then. I scowl at the light. It is certainly not my friend this day. I clamber up toward Clarice's peach nestled in the hills. So, where may they be? I had fled from the river delta of Tinana to climb these hills and lose them in the mountains. Once I had seen a broken line of torches in pursuit, as I stood above the farmland stretching away to the southeast. That was on the third day. I heard the jingle of a horse's bridle three days later, and fled into a thicket of thorns. Five or seven days after, while stepping silently through a forest, the birds had ceased their singing and the insects their buzzing, and once here in the hills I had seen a thin wisp of smoke behind. They must know I am here somewhere. What are these hills named? I try to recollect. Juventus claim runs down from the mountains to the forested hills on the flanks. They roll northward and south to Livingood and Opsi, her low, treeless mountains are no place to hide. 
They all have windswept crowns with black lava rock and seasonal white eyes. I would be spotted instantly. No, I must flank the mountains and stay in these wooded hills. But to the north or the south, how should I flee? Now that I have a full belly and clear head, it is time to work toward the raising of a castle once more. And oh, what a castle this will be, even greater than my lost Magadha. She was a legendary manse, towering and black, with yards wide enough to barrack a host of ten thousand. My school of artists was the largest academy in all Alakshak, and its graduates were my many captains. For a time, the heavens wheeled around Magadha. The whole universe rotated on my axis. I remember it best at night, when pale light illuminated the narrow windows and murder holes, Katawala on his knees in the mud, begging for his life. This time, in an even grander castle, I would not spare it. North. They will expect me to go north. They know I can disappear more easily on the steps of Dinali. Yet they also respect my famously devious mind. The south is sure to be watched. They mean to run me up against these bleak black mountains and spit me upon them. Juventa may not be good for much, but she serves as an admirable bulwark to break a legend like me against. And in her own domain, her power is absolute. I dare not tread there, and they know it. I am pushing my way through a nest of dimpleberries and flax when the thought strikes me. I am not being hunted, but hounded. I have not seen my pursuers because I run in the direction they desire. Only if I fell off this track would the dogs nip at me. There is some trap at the end of this. Yes? Is that it? Or have they truly lost me in this expanse? My dithering feet will not take another step. I stutter to a helpless stop. Forward? Back into their teeth. To the left or to the right? Oh, I will roast the hummingbird queen for this. Over a slow fire, her skin will crackle like a broiled pig. Hours pass and I still haven't moved. If they truly mean to chivy me forward onto the points of spears, they will find me here soon enough. For the first time in my life, I feel old, incapable of action, a ghastly state of affairs. I was meant to rule the world, not die shivering in a ditch. The sun sets, and night comes, cold and empty. After another hour, the jewels wheel overhead in the night sky, their pretty dancing lights a bittersweet reminder of fireside folk tales and bedtime stories. The jewels reside above the moon, but below the sun, legends tell us. They are countless, as plentiful as the stars beyond, yet of every color and size. They wink at me and glitter, so lovely, so unbearably distant and lovely. One blazes, then another in response, as if they speak to each other. One jewel turns brilliant azure and flares much larger. Another rejoins by shining bright green. They are mourners at my funeral, discussing the body. I lie frozen in my coffin of mud, incapable of movement, and grieve with them for me. A bright flash of white from the southeast, and a meteor streaks down to us, silently trailing a plume of brilliant purple and orange. I can see the smoke. 
It reminds me of the time. I leaped to my feet, the idea still half-formed in my mind. Yes, it certainly does remind me of the time. That awful, terrifying time. I laugh. I am restored. If only the stiffness in my legs and back were to relieve me. Ah, uh, Absom, thou art certainly not dead yet. On the last day of my boyhood, I saw a falling star. My father had abused me for sloth and turned me out of the house for the night to watch over the pathetic sheep on the scraggling hillside. I wrapped my naked arms around my bony knees and imagined all sorts of torments for the cruel bastard, snug in his stinking little cottage. I took what revenge I could on the dull-brained sheep, beating them with my crook and leading them into the nettles where they would bleat piteously from countless scratches to their hocks. Then suddenly... The night had blazed as bright as day, and the sheep had all wheeled their foolish heads upward to see what doom would claim them. It was a meteor, an irregular black sphere, alight with fire, trailing smoke. Eyes squinted against the incandescent glare. I exulted to see the end of the world approach. I knew that nothing could stand in its way, not even the collected might of the noontide king whose lands we inhabited. The meteor crashed to the earth with a hollow, distant boom, and the ground quivered. The sheep all screamed. I cackled. From my vantage point atop the hill, I could see the destruction it had wrought. Smoke billowed up from the impact point. Trees had already begun to burn. Soon the entire forest was alight, and the families of our rude little hamlet had spilled from their huts to gape at the ash-filled night. It had been a dry season, and the flames rushed mercilessly toward us. My father's voice, the last I ever heard it, was raised in a curse, a rather weak and uninspired curse, from a weak and uninspired man. He died how he lived. My mother called out once for me, then fled into an oncoming wall of smoke. I could not delay any longer. I fled with fire nipping at my heels. Only when I reached the constable and its quarries did I stop, panting, covered in soot. I was found later that morning by a mine supervisor, enslaved, and put to work that very day hauling gravel from a pit. This too has been a dry season, and where the fallen jewel has landed must be conflagration. I will not flee another fallen star. With imprisonment at last behind me, I run laughing toward the smoke and flames. It is several leagues of hard charging in the dark, I hear nothing but my ragged breath and the crack of branches beneath my three-pins. I stop to find my bearings and hear distant cries from the hilltops around me. Aha! They'd been following me after all. Do they guess what I mean to do? Or is it merely a clan of foresters fighting to save their homes? Perhaps it is both. I circle further around the flank of the mountains to find the wildfire. It is still the dead of night. Soon I spot a flickering orange worm on the ridgeline above, eating through the woods and brush, a voracious long bright worm, twisting and coiling, issuing forth smoke and ash. There, where the wildfire billows up a great old blackwood tree, it cracks and fuels the greedy blaze with combustible sap. Explosions mount in the crowns. Now the apocalypse races toward me, just as it should." If only Yavriel is not in the van. If she is my pursuer, then this fire will obey her and never me. 
I am a great master of flame, but it courses through her hot blood. She is fire through and through. Without her, I am supreme here. One does not bargain with ignited demons unless one has mastered their brimstone. I am perfectly at home in this heat. I stride into it. The imps deep within me chatter with joy. For them this is a homecoming. Yet I rely on their diabolical essences to keep me from being charred. This they happily oblige me, for I am their steed, riding them toward their pyre. It is as hot as any hell within the blaze, yet I have survived a few hells before. I am blinded by the smoke and ash, but chaos is my creed. All I must do is feed the wild inferno. Spread it. When treetops shatter, exploding with fire, I call forth the imps and let them play from my fingertips. I carry the blaze farther afield, my muttered words lost in the cacophony. None can sense or track me here. Now it is time to bring despair to my enemies. I step into the night, my hands filled with flames. Thanks for listening to A Lot Shock. Stay tuned every week for new episodes. Tell your friends and keep an eye out for other stories told here on The Unuseful Hour.